Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked to them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And he came out, he told the people of Israel what he had been commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil back over his face again until he went to speak with him. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 99. We will read responsibly by whole verse. The Lord is king, let peoples tremble. He sets between the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and high above all beings. They shall give thanks unto his name, which is great and wonderful. Holy is he and mighty, a king who loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed judgment and righteousness in Jacob. O oh, magnify the Lord our God, fall down before his footstool, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among those who call upon his name. They call upon the Lord, and he heard them. He spoke to them out of the cloudy pillar, for they kept his testimonies and the laws that he gave them. You heard them, O Lord our God. You forgave them, O God, yet punished their evil doings. O magnify the Lord our God and worship upon his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Glory to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. just gospel that's it I knew there was something here let me see hang on a minute folks here we go our New Testament reading today is 1st Corinthians 12 27 to 13 13 now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it and God has appointed the church first apostles second prophets third teachers then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All our apostles, all our prophets, all our teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, 
and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned and I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, mirror dimly, and then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. The gospel reading today, gospel reading today comes from... Uh, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets of old that is risen. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one this, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was 
altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to happen in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. So the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, which we're in right now between Christmas and Lent, the last Sunday in Epiphany is Transfiguration Sunday, and it's about this specific passage. And this passage appears in three out of the four Gospels. Now, anytime something appears in all four Gospels, you can be guaranteed that the church is going to take it very seriously and talk about it pretty often. This one shows up in three out of the four. A little bit in the fourth, but we'll get to that. But this is really important, both in terms of the, the strangeness and the uniqueness of the event in the life of Jesus and the disciples, but it also has a real message both for how the disciples would have perceived Jesus going forward, and also how we can perceive it. It's a visually stunning story, and it is clearly a miracle of some kind, but, but Jesus did a lot of miracles. I mean, he, he healed the sick, he walked on the water, he turned lo five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed 5,000 people. He even raised people from the dead. So why are, we, why are we focusing on this one, and why do we do it right before Lent? Let me pray for us as we open God's Word. Father, when, when I read passages like this, sometimes it, it seems like it's too otherworldly for me to connect to my life. Um, it seems like it's out of a fantasy novel. I pray that, that as we look through this passage and as I, as I talk about it, that you will show us not only how transcendent you are, show us not only how how other than us you are, but also show us how near to us you are. Show us how much Jesus is God and yet is also man. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to follow along with us, uh, open your Bible to Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you'd like to have one, there's blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles on the table in the back is yours to keep. So, as I said before, three out of the four Gospels have this story in it. The, uh, the three Gospels that we tend to group together into what are called the synoptic Gospels, which means seeing the same things. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, and they basically, like if you charted out what the, the narrative in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is, they're all roughly the same. So you can see them all together as one group. John doesn't mention this story, which is really interesting because John is one of the guys up on the mountain with Jesus. And yet... He, he kind of makes an allusion to it in John 1, chapter 14, 
very, very famous verse that I'll get to at the end. So, um, no, I'm sorry, uh, that I'll get to right now. So, uh, in John chapter 1, he says, the Word became flesh. This is crucial. The Word, who is God the Son, always existing, eternal. The Word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us, or tented among us. That is, Jesus himself was the tabernacle that moved with God's people through this world. And so Jesus became flesh, or the, the, the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. He became the tent of meeting. And, then John says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says that we, that is, he and, and his friends, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. And I think what he's talking about here in John 1 is that moment of transfiguration. When Jesus was dazzling white and a voice from out of the cloud said, This is my Son, my chosen one. So anyway, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have this story. It is a confusing miracle because it's so dense with imagery in so few words. So it's interesting to me that for the last 2,000 years, they've built a feast day around this, this story that I never really understood. Jesus has just said to his followers, he just said to them in every one of the Gospels, he just said to them, who do people say that I am? This is a crucial question for what, what's in view here. And they all said various things. They said, some people say you're a teacher. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're Elijah, risen from the dead. But then Jesus turns to them and he says, but who do you think I am? Peter says, in every single version of the story, Peter says, you are the Christ. And then a week later, this happens, this transfiguration. And God is showing the disciples that Jesus is even more than what they thought he was. He's affirming what Peter said, you are the Christ. But he's also, and I'll, I'll hope to draw this out, he's also showing them that Jesus is not just the Christ, but that he's actually even more. So, key thing to remember here, Peter says Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ. Jesus' name is Jesus of Nazareth. And Christ is not strictly a New Testament word. Christ shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, too. Remember, New Testament written in Greek originally. Old Testament written in Hebrew. Christ comes from, the, what we say is Christ, comes from a Greek word called Christos, which simply means the anointed one or the chosen one. And Christos is, only, Christos is just the Greek word for a Hebrew word called Mashiach, which also means the anointed one or the chosen one. And we pronounce the Hebrew word Mashiach as Messiah. So the New Testament, New Testament word Christ and the Old Testament word Messiah are literally the exact same thing. It means the anointed one or the chosen one. And both refer to the final king that God promised to his people. When, it, when God was first talking with King David in 2 um, second, second Samuel chapter 7, he promises that after David would come one that God anointed to rule and reign on the throne of Israel forever. That was the first instance of us seeing the promise of the Messiah. But then it's picked up over and over again in the later books and in the prophets. So look with me here, verse 18. 
Now, as it happened, he was praying among the disciples. The disciples were with him. He said, who do the crowd say that I am? They said, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. Others, one of the prophets that's written of old. But he said to them, who do you say I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You are this king that we have been promised, that we have been waiting for, for hundreds of years. And then as Jesus almost always does in the very next verse, he charges them to tell no one. Like if Jesus was going to come and really grow his ministry, he is terrible at branding. I mean, he's just bad at marketing. He's constantly saying to people, instead of go out there and tell everybody, he's saying, don't tell anyone who I am. The world is not ready for that yet. And it makes no sense the next thing that Jesus would say. He says something that must make his disciples very confused. He tells them that not only is he the king, but also that he's going to die. He's going to be handed over, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. That would make no sense to these disciples who grew up with the idea of the promised Messiah who they, told, they were told is going to rule and reign forever. If you're the Messiah, if you're the king, how can you die? And then he says that we're supposed to imitate him. So real quick in a row, Jesus affirms that he is this promised Messiah. Then he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to die, but don't worry because I'm going to be raised again three days later. And then he says, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, if anyone would be my apprentice or imitate me, he must take up his cross and follow me. In effect, you have to be willing to die too. If you're going to try to save your own life for your own sake, you're just going to lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life for Christ's sake, then, that will, then, then you will save it. And I can imagine the disciples thinking, um... Being a king does not sound nearly as glorious as I thought if there's all this humiliation and torture and death. And then in verse 23, I'm sorry, in verse 28, it says this. Now, about eight days after this, now all, all the Gospels agree that it was a week after. Some say six days, some say eight days. About eight days after this, he took Peter and James and John and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And then, behold, two men were standing on either side of him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory, and they spoke about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In those couple of sentences, there is so much here to unpack. Moses and Elijah, if you don't know, Moses and Elijah were two figures from the Old Testament. Moses was the lawgiver. He was the one who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the Red Sea that God had parted so they could cross through on dry land. He led them out of slavery. He led them into the wilderness, and he was the one who was leading them as God was directing them. And he's the one that God chose to bring his law to his people. Moses led God's people on an exodus out of slavery. He led them to the promised land, and he did this as part of God's plan of redemption. So that's one guy. The other guy, Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God. He was living in and around a time of serious idolatry and evil. And he was phenomenally successful. 
at defeating these prophets of idolatry and standing up to the wicked and evil rulers of Israel. And during the time of Elijah, there was a three-year drought and a famine that went along with it. Nobody had any water. Nobody had any food. And through Elijah's actions, he brought the blessings of God in the form of food and water back to God's people by defeating these wicked followers of a false god, all as a part of God's plan of redemption. Now, by the time of Jesus, these guys were very, very dead. Uh, Elijah had been dead for at least 500 years. Moses had been dead for about 1,500 years. And so this was clearly a supernatural thing, these two men that showed up to have a conversation with Jesus. They were, and that's important, they were talking with him. They were talking to him, and he was talking to them. And they weren't just chatting. They were actually specifically talking to him about his own departure or his own exodus. They were talking to him about the exodus that he was about to undergo, again, all as part of God's plan of redemption. But when you read this, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you can, at least I found myself asking, why these two? Out of all the people that you could pick in the Old Testament, why these two? Why not like Abraham, who was the, the original father of the nation of Israel, the one, who inhe- the one who was promised by God this one-way covenant of grace? Why not Abraham and maybe David, King David, the greatest king of Israel, the one to whom God promised that he would eventually send a Messiah? Why not Joseph and Isaiah? Joseph in the Old Testament probably exemplifies the characteristics of Jesus better than anybody else does. And Isaiah was, was the prophet that prophesied most about Jesus, most about the coming Messiah. He prophesied about the, the suffering servant that Jesus was, the sacrifices that he would have to make. Isaiah is the one who said those, those famous words that we hear a lot, that, that the Messiah would be pierced for our, that the suffering servant would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. Upon him, was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So why not any of those guys? Why Moses and Elijah? Two reasons. And both of them illustrate a different aspect of God's assurance to his people. Both of them illustrate the gospel in, in slightly different ways. And both of them show us in, in a few words just exactly who this Jesus is. So, Moses and Elijah. Every week, Almost every week, a couple times in the year we don't, but almost every week of the year, we read at the very beginning of our liturgy something called the Summary of the Law. This is from Matthew chapter 22. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And this is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? We say that every week. The phrase that actually occurs a good bit around the New Testament, the law and the prophets. And it's always in that order in those two things. And that construction, when you take both of them together, at that time, that was basically a a slang way or an idiomatic way of saying the Bible. On these two commandments depend the Bible. Now, what we would call the Old Testament. I mean, they didn't call it the Old Testament then because they didn't have a New Testament. It would be like people in 1920, referring to the Great War that was going on as World War I. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But they would call the Bible the Law and the Prophets. Now, if you want to pick two people out of the entire Bible to best personify the Law and the Prophets, it would be these two guys. 
Moses and Elijah. Moses was literally the law bringer. God gave Moses the law, and Moses brought it to the people. He was the one that told them in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy exactly what God's law was. And Elijah is often seen as the most celebrated of the prophets. So that's the first thing that this narrative is showing, that Jesus is in perfect harmony, that he's in conversation with the law and the prophets, that he is the fulfillment of every single thing that the Old Testament prophesied and promised about who, God's, about who God's people would be and about who their leader would be, about who their king would be. It's, in effect, a visual way of, of saying exactly what Peter said a couple verses earlier. This is the Christ. But if you know the story of Moses, the story of Elijah, there's actually even more. We heard in our Old Testament reading today Moses being up on the mountain and being surrounded by this cloud of God. That also happens a second time in Exodus 33. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God, and Moses said to God, please let me see your glory, or please let me see your face. And God says, you can't. Cannot. Nobody can see my face and live. But what I'll do, it says, if you stand in this cleft of the rock, I will cover you and I will pass by you, and my glory will, will envelop you, but you can't see me. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He wants to see God. God says, you can't see me because you'll die, but my, my presence will be with you. Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is a, a great prophet of the Lord. He's God's mouthpiece to a rebellious nation. He defeats some false prophets. He runs away to Mount Horeb the mount of the Lord, and he goes up the mountain, and he wants to see God. And he's looking for God on top of this mountain. He's looking for a sign from God. And God brings an earthquake on top of the mountain, but he was not present in the earthquake. And then God brings this massive fire, but he was not present in the fire. And then finally, there is a low voice, almost like a hum. That's where Elijah hears God. And Elijah calls to, or God calls to Elijah, and he says, come out of that cave and stand out here, because you're going to be in the very presence of God. Moses goes up a mountain, enveloped by the presence of God, meets with God, talks with God, can't see God. Elijah goes up on a mountain, enveloped by the very presence of God, meets with God, talks with God, can't see God. Because no one, we are told, can see God and live. So here in Luke 9, where are Jesus and his disciples? They're up on a mountain. Who shows up? Moses and Elijah. And they're meeting with someone. And they're talking with someone. And they're in the very presence of someone. So who is it? This is, I think, what, what, God, what Jesus and, uh, was trying to show to his disciples and also to us. Who is it that these men are meeting with? As they have before. They're meeting with God. That Jesus is the God-man, except now, because Jesus has become flesh, because he's become like one of us, now they can see him. Now they can see him and live, and so can his disciples. It used to be that no, that no one could see God and live, but now that Jesus, the God-man, walks among his peoples, people can see him. This is clearly a miracle. It's clearly a miracle. Somehow the disciples recognize who these two guys are, even though there would have never been any pictures of them. They know that it's Moses and Elijah. 
They know that Jesus' actual face, his appearance, has been transformed, and he's suddenly glowing, dazzling white. It's clearly a miracle, but the interesting thing is, this miracle is not something that Jesus does. It's a miracle that happens to him rather than happens through him. It's actually one of three miracles in the New Testament that happened to Jesus rather than happened by Jesus. And each one of them is significant. At his baptism, Jesus gets baptized, he goes into the water, John baptizes him, he comes up out of the water, and all of a sudden the heavens split. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice, an audible voice to everybody comes from the clouds, this is my son, I am so pleased with him. And then the second one is here. Jesus on a mountaintop praying. But then suddenly, not because of what he did, but because of what God the Father did, suddenly he's standing talking with two guys who, who are the physical embodiment of the law and the prophets. Two guys who had both gone up on top of a mountain to meet with God. And a cloud comes. And a voice comes out of the cloud and it says, this is my son. Listen to him. And we can see that the result as I can understand, the disciples were very confused. And Peter does a very Peter thing. I love every time we see something that Peter says in the Gospels because he wants so hard to be helpful and he wants so hard to follow Jesus. And he doesn't have a great filter between his brain and his mouth because he just blurts out the first thing that he can think. And I love that because I do that all the time. And it's really nice to see someone else do it. Peter says, uh, Lord, it's really good that they're here with you. Let's build three tents, uh, one for each of them and one for you. What do you think? But even if they were confused, even, if, even as they were saying to themselves, what is going on here? They're getting these reassurances, visual reassurances, audible reassurances, that God is in control, that God is working out his plan in the world. And here they get even more detail about that. They can see Jesus with the law and the prophets. They can see Jesus conversing with these men who had longed to talk with God, but were told they could never see him. About a week before this, they had definitively learned that Jesus was the promised Old Testament Messiah, the anointed king. And now they're having a mountaintop experience with two guys who had mountaintop experiences with God. And Jesus didn't have to show them any of this, right? Like, this is, not, this is not necessary for God's plan of redemption. This is not necessary for anyone's salvation. The cross was necessary. The resurrection was necessary. Jesus' baptism was even necessary. But this, this display, this audacious display of who Jesus really is, was not, strictly speaking, necessary. But what it was, gracious. It's God graciously saying to, to, to Jesus' disciples, you guys are hanging out with God. You are hanging out with not only the promised Messiah, but with God himself. Because this is what God does for us. Throughout the scriptures, we get assurances. We get assurances that no matter how bad things get, because for the disciples, things were about to get really bad. Like, this is why this transfiguration passage shows up right before Lent. Because Jesus was about to start heading for Jerusalem. He was about to start having more and more conflicts with the religious, re with the religious rulers, the scribes, the Pharisees. This next chapter of his ministry ends 
in his torture and death. So things were about to get very bad, but God assures us over and over that no matter how bad things get, that we are with him. Not just his messenger, not just his law, but we are with him. What God does over and over again. He assures us that he is in control and that he is actually working out his very specific plan. He shows us this in the scriptures. He shows us this in the gathering of his people together. He shows us this as he builds his church, no matter how bad things get. He is in control, and he is working out his plan. And he shows us this at the table every week when we come together. He assures us that no matter how bad things get, he is in control, and he is working out his plan. Because as in three days we, we prepare to start following Jesus to the cross, this is the path of Lent. This is why Lent is a penitential time. Why Lent is a time where even when we gather on Sunday to celebrate the resurrected king, it's tinged with sadness because we're journeying with Jesus to the cross. We know what awaits him, just as he did. And the journey gets harder and harder the closer he gets to them. Not just for him, but for his disciples too. They had doubts. They had uncertainty. Not knowing what the next thing would be. But through all that, they would have been able to look back on this moment on the mountaintop and remember that they heard directly from God and they saw, they saw what they saw and they heard what they heard. They saw Jesus transformed into this dazzling white image and they heard a voice saying, this is my son, listen to him, listen to him, listen to his words, listen to what he's trying to tell you, follow him, obey him. Through all that, they would have been able to look back and have assurance that God was in control. And it's the same with us. We can look back on the, on the Bible and see that God is clearly in control no matter what bad thing happens to somebody, that everything is working for God's plan of redemption. We can have assurance in that. We can look back on the history of the church and see God's hand clearly moving in building his church. In the midst of doubt and uncertainty and hardship, we can look back to the final of the three miracles that was done to Jesus and not through Jesus. In the midst of uncertainty and doubt, we can know through the table that we come to every week that Christ was resurrected. Jesus didn't resurrect himself. God resurrected him to new life. And we celebrate that every week. And that's our assurance when we have doubt and uncertainty and hardship. When we come to the table each week, we look back on the miracle that happened. We take an assurance that God is working out his plan. And we can look forward then to that day when that dazzling white transfigured Jesus is going to come back. We can look forward to that day when he will show up every bit as glorious as he was during the transfiguration with the same amount of, of blinding light that Peter, James, and John saw. We know that he will come back and that all of us will then attain that same glory. All of us will be resurrected to eternal life and that we will all get to live in his presence. And so for the first time, we will be able to say, as Peter, James, and John did, that we saw God face to face and lived. We will be able to say, as Moses and Elijah finally do here, which they were never able to do in their lives, that they, find, that they saw God and lived. We get, that, we get that too. And that's what our hope is anchored in. That's the equipping for the hard road ahead, that this man, this man is not only the promised king, but that he is God himself. 
and that we should listen to him. Let me pray. Father, as we journey through this world, we pray that you would remind us that you are, that you are who you say you are, that you are in control, that you are working out your plan in your creation. And we pray that as we, as we prepare to move into this season of Lent, as we prepare to journey with, with Jesus to the cross, that you would remind us that, that no matter the fact that we go through suffering as well, that there is glory. We pray that as we, as we prepare daily to do what Jesus calls us to do, which is to take up our cross, to die to self, and to live for others, and to live for him, we pray that you would strengthen us with these, with these images, with these crazy pictures that you've given your people of who Jesus really is. We pray that as we, as we prepare to meet him again one day in that same, in that same degree of glory, that you, would, that you would strengthen us to not, only, um, to not only anticipate that day, but to tell others about it. Pray all this in Jesus' name.